Hello everyone and welcome back to 2020 Psych. I'm one of your hosts, Claire Kay, and I'm joined today by none other than my father. I'll go ahead and let him introduce himself. Hello, my name is Dr. Hernandez. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Once again, this is episode 9 of our 2020 Psych podcast, and wow, it really is flying by the episodes each week. So we just want to thank you for tuning in and listening and hearing what we have to say. This week, we are revisiting a topic that we started on, which is COVID-19. We're going to give a little bit of an update, but also dive into COVID-19 and how it is affecting those with severe mental illness. So, Dad, um, before we dive into the severe mental illness aspect as it it involves COVID-19, let's just kind of recap on what's been different um or what's changed since our first episode in which we talked about covid and uh i know we mentioned uh school talking about school starting up again uh, because that was something that hadn't happened yet and now we're probably about a month a good month and a half into schools being reopened um 200,000 dead with 7 million diagnosed with covid uh what are your thoughts well as you know the pandemic seems to be going on strong. There's seemingly no end in sight to it. So we still have to revisit this topic because it doesn't seem as if it's going to go away anytime soon. And in, and I, I know today's topic is going to touch on severe mental illness, but there's other forms of mental illness that have been also touched by COVID-19. Uh, there's some patients that are coming into the hospital on respirators because of the pneumonia that that they're that they're suffering from, and they're put on respirators, and maybe uh, COVID nineteen doesn't directly impact the brain in that sense, but because it forces patients to be on respirators, there are consequences, mental health wise, that surface when uh, patients are are intubated and put on on ventilators. So that's something that we're seeing that some of these patients are becoming demented-like. They're, they're losing their ability to remember things and think clearly again. And also patients are becoming confused and disoriented because of the pneumonia that's brought on by COVID. So these are indirect, uh, but in many ways, very closely related to COVID-19. And in addition to severely uh, mentally ill patients, we're getting patients that may have not had a prior mental illness, but now because of namely anxiety and depression uh, brought on by the pandemic, they're also starting to show some manifestations of depression. And even some of their support systems are being stressed to the point where now they're having some financial issues and that's causing some depression and anxiety. Recently, a patient was telling me that the delivery fees for his groceries are putting uh, a severe limitation on his very limited income. So that's causing his bills to pile up, and that in turn is causing a lot of depressed anxiety that, that really wasn't there prior to the pandemic. So would you say that we are seeing a spike in mental illness 
uh, within the United States at least as it concerns anxiety and depression for people who might nece not necessarily um, experience anxiety in their day-to-day -day life are now uh, getting a, a taste of what it's like and uh, maybe they don't know how to cope. I think that the added stress of the pandemic has caused turmoil in the emotional lives of, of many people. So yes, I would say that the numbers are increasing uh, just based on the, the adverse effect that the pandemic has had uh, across many people. So with the increase of people developing anxiety and depression, would you say that during this time, mental health uh, support systems and mental health tools and access to health care has increased, stayed the same, or gotten worse? Well, unfortunately, when the pandemic started, many of the mental health clinics closed. Uh, so when you had a system that was working, I would say, marginally well, all of a sudden it closes and what used to be a support system for patients no longer is there. Uh, as you know, not, some of the more severely mentally ill patients do not have access to virtual therapy uh, via being online. So uh, they're excluded from a, a, a network of uh, support that would, would serve them relatively well. So there's been more barriers set up because of this that fewer patients are having access to care that was previously uh, made available to them. So you make that comment as, and you're someone that's been in the mental health uh, care field for over 30 plus years now. What would you say that needs to be done for access, you know, to become greater to the greater populations, the more vulnerable populations? I mean, I understand that you are only one doctor. You practice in one specific state. You you don't speak for the psychiatrists nationwide. But uh, what would you say needs to happen for there to be a shift in the quality of care and the access to care? Well, I think that more resources need to be devoted to mental health services. There has to be more reaching out to patients there were, of course, a set number of patients, and in addition, you add patients that we mentioned earlier are now developing some mental health issues. So you're going to need at least as many resources as you had before and some additional ones to make up for the new patients. So I think that even non-psychiatric professionals, other medical colleagues are going to have to sort of help out uh, those, particularly those doctors in primary care, are going to have to be providing services that they would normally defer to a psychiatrist. They're going to have to take on some of the burden. I think that's one way of of, uh, of helping uh, uh, during this crisis. Though, as you know, they're overburdened with COVID patients and so forth as well. So it's really going to stretch our health services throughout the country, if not the whole world. I agree, which is why I think that one of one of the things that I appreciate 
appreciate about sitting down and doing this podcast every week is that I feel that it is reaching some people and some people are listening and they hear us what we have to say and it's encouraging them to reach out to others when they need help and when they may feel like they can't do it alone whatever that may be for them in their life um so I want to just put on record that like I want us to continue to do this and continue to say what we can and bring light to whatever we can for people to for someone to hear us and I mean all that matters is if that one person who really needs it you know well there are things that in this in these challenging times that people can do that are feeling some stress and anxiety and there are tools available online so you can get help uh, through several sources that may help alleviate your depression your anxiety uh, other things like addiction they're doing virtual 12-step programs online so you can reach out there's and you have to look for things that normally you wouldn't think of doing but I think this is a the, the appropriate time to look for to use non-conventional treatment methods to to try to sort of help self-help. I want to now dive into COVID-19 as it pertains to uh, severely mentally ill patients. Um, Let's first touch on, because I know there's a combination of mentally ill patients that contracted COVID-19, but then I also kind of want to dive into how has... um, your relationship changed with your patients because of how you practice now you know everything's virtual online is there tr- is there an issue with establishing trust with your patients that maybe feel paranoid talking to a computer or ha- have you seen any um pushback with that at all actually i think that it's been very well received and, and i'm pleasantly surprised that patients are accepting of of therapy in a virtual form I think I think that they're appreciative that they're able to reach out to someone and for the most part it's worked exceedingly well and I can actually say that it's it's worked uh, it's exceeded my expectations uh, as to how well uh, that's gone actually Um, with patients that are in the hospital in psych wards in particular uh, have you has there been an increase in paranoia because of the coronavirus or is that something that is one of the lesser problems that that's at hand? Well, patients are coming in with symptoms that include being paranoid. And unfortunately for some patients, it's because they have had less access to their medication. Some patients have difficulties going to clinics to get, say, long-acting injectables. They've had difficulties getting out to their pharmacy. So they've had difficulties getting a medication prescribed to them. So access to medication has been a big barrier during this time. So what are some of the things that patients can do to get around this issue? Well, there's a, a number of things that psychiatrists and even primary care doctors can do. For some patients that their medication comes in a long-acting injectable, it's a good idea at this point to switch patients over to that, that form of, uh, of, a, of a medication because there's some medications that will work from 30 to 90 days uh, with just a single injection. So 
that would be one way. Uh, sometimes doctors would only prescribe a two-week supply. Now doctors are going to have to start prescribing maybe 30-day supplies. So we kind of have to relax some of the, the standards that we had before in order to accommodate this uh, barrier to care. Why were those the standards before in the first place with the shorter um, prescriptions? Is that just because you wanted to do follow-up with patients? Namely, that was it, to be a little, to keep closer touch with our patients for their well-being, really to make sure that they were safer. Um, but again, times are changing now. Uh, they're more challenging, and it's better for the patient to have some medication, even though the intervals may be longer apart than for the patients not to have any. So I think right now it makes a lot more sense to sort of relax some of the uh, our medication practices uh, because I think that the, real, the benefits far outweigh the risk. So now I want to move on to patients that deal with mental illness already getting coronavirus. Are they reacting differently to, let's say, a patient that doesn't have mental diagnosed mental illness? What I've seen, uh, as you know, I work in a very underserved uh, community where patients uh, don't have um, resources that other even mentally ill patients do in, in some other more affluent areas. What I'm finding, though, is that the patients are very resilient, that they remain strong, and they're coping actually relatively well. And contrary to what many public health uh, experts felt or thought that patients that, were, that are homeless, that were, they were going to be more vulnerable to uh, become infected with COVID-19. And what, what the reality is, is that I think there's surprisingly few numbers of patients in that category that have become infected. And what's even more surprising to some uh, is that few of them are becoming sick in the sense that most of them are really asymptomatic. They come in, they test positive, but they don't have they're, they haven't fallen ill to, to COVID-19. They haven't developed pneumonias or any of the medical complications that most patients have. And I've always felt that their immune systems seem to be stronger than most people be, just because of the environment that they're in. And fortunately, it seems as though that sort of played out that uh, this patient population, um, which seemingly would be so vulnerable to get so sick, they're actually seemingly have stronger immune systems than than the rest of the population. So thank goodness for that. I wonder, it makes me curious, um, just because like you just said, they, they're not um, displaying any s symptoms of COVID. Um, they come in asymptomatic. I'm wondering what it does long term to them, because I think we were speaking about this the other day, how um, when someone gets coronavirus and their only symptom is the loss of taste and smell, what that indicates is that the virus is in their brain. So I'm just wondering, and I don't even know if you would have the answer to this, but what that does long-term for a patient with mental illness that tests positive but has no symptoms. Well, as because we don't have any data on, yet, on this yet, it's still unknown. Uh, it'll be interesting to see over time how... Uh, 
if patients develop any neurological sequelae to this, if they do have some complications further on down the line, it's something that, of course, is going to be studied and monitored. And let's hope that nothing too serious happens. But uh, again, there's too many unknowns about this virus. So I was in preparation for this episode. I had Googled um, COVID-19 and severe mental illness. And I came across this journal um, entitled The Impact of COVID-19 on Individuals Living with Severe Mental Illness. But it was published on a government website. um, And one of the things they mention in this journal is that um, the COVID-19 pandemic can be a catalyst for the new onset of psychosis. Um, So I'm just wondering, we touched on it a bit earlier, but can people already prone to mental illness trigger a psychosis because of the paranoia they may feel if they they don't want to contract COVID and they're, they're super paranoid about that? Well, that's something that I haven't seen. What I have seen is that patients with severe mental illness do have a respect for the virus, and it does scare them. What I've noticed is that when we ask them to comply, to do isolation housing, almost every single one of them has has been accepting of that. Of all the patients I've had, only one has been reluctant to do so. And so I find that remarkable that patients do have a grasp for the seriousness of the virus despite their mental illness and they're going to try to cooperate with public health and isolate and wear a mask and do things that they should be doing. And I find that remarkably uh, strong and impressive on their part. One of the things they also mention in this journal is about loneliness and how COVID-19 has kind of increased loneliness amongst individuals, specifically with severe mental illness. How do we combat that when obviously we need to be socially distanced and wear our mask and things like that. How do you think people with mental illness do that safely? I don't know. I don't even know if that's the properly proper way to phrase that question. Well, as you know, we recently touched on the topic about um, depression and mental illness in college students and one of the, and particularly suicide, and one of the key markers for suicide in college was loneliness. And interestingly, enough, uh, that's not even part of the diagnostic criteria of the American Diagnostic Manual. So, but it makes sense if you feel lonely, if you feel isolated, that's going to make you feel depressed. I think it's, 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 it's too obvious. Uh, uh, so the way to combat this is to try to t- stay in touch with uh, your friends, with your support system online, on the phone, uh, and as you know, uh, that's not always possible for the mentally, severely mentally ill because they don't have phones, uh, not all of them anyway. So, so that's, that poses a challenge. One of the things that helps patients stay stable is when they get together in a group, set, in a group setting, in group therapy, in a day treatment programs where they're able to socialize with their peers. And so when you take that away, it does uh, burden them and it makes them more vulnerable to have relapses and end up in hospitals or even hurt themselves. So that's a challenge during this during this difficult time. And as you know, some people 
are forgetting about the safety precautions that they're that they're supposed to take and i'm not even talking about severely mentally ill people just people in general and they're having family reunions or they're they're having social gatherings just because that there's that inclination to socialize because we're social beings for the most part but again during this difficult and challenging and deadly time it's it's something that it's not it shouldn't really be an option we we need a distance and we need to safeguard ourselves and others i agree and just reiterating wearing a mask socially distance staying in quarantine if possible uh it is challenging times and, and it makes me concerned for those that are severe i'm concerned for everyone and the well-being of others but specifically for severely mentally ill people you know how, how do we help them well as i pointed out before mentally ill patients are generally a very strong uh, group uh, they're very strong individuals that have admirable resiliency and strengths that most people uh, don't really have so their coping mechanisms are just off the scales unbelievably strong so for the most part i think they're they're handling it better than expected so but uh, supporting the uh, national alliance for the mentally ill and other uh respect respected uh, uh groups that advocate for the mentally ill are are, are are things that that one can do i'm curious before we wrap up just what the consensus is with, with amongst health mental health care professionals have you spoken to your colleagues and your professional peers about what can be done for the mentally ill population during these times are, are these continuous dialogues that people in the community are having like what what's being done on the professional side well, I think psychiatrists throughout the nation, are, are the leaders in psychiatry, are advocating for an increase in resources for the mentally ill at this time, and, and, and I think that that's, of course, appropriate, and they've recognized that the barriers to care, such as the what we mentioned earlier, such clo the closing of the clinics, uh, that needs to be addressed. There needs to be uh, uh, a reopening as much as possible. Uh, again, how, as that that is of course very difficult because of the infectious nature of uh, of what we're going through at this point. Uh, but the consensus among psychiatrists is that from a from a national level, there needs to be more resources, more monies allocated to helping reach out to patients that can't make it to a clinic because the clinics are closed. There need to be more mobile response teams that can reach out to the community and to serve the individuals that are uh, very much in need. That's going to go ahead and wrap up this week's episode of 2020 Psych. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening once again. Follow our Instagram at 2020 Psych Podcast. Uh, that's where we post most often and post when we have new episodes. And that's where you can chat with us and let us know your thoughts and opinions on our episodes and anything else you want us to cover. But nonetheless, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day wherever you are.